0: If I could recommend a YouTube show, or a YouTube channel, um, for those of you who don't subscribe to things or know how to get to things, I'll just kind of give this to you really quick, and I'll show you how you can get to it. But if you're not familiar with Breakpoint yet, Breakpoint is a uh, research and uh, kind of cultural commentary arm of Prison Fellowship Ministries. So the late Chuck Colson, who uh, founded Prison Fellowship, a lot of a lot of us know Prison Fellowship through Angel Tree. The, the Christmas where they uh, you know uh, provide presents for children whose parents are in prison right that big ministry so that's his most famous ministry but they do many other things I think we got the youth group going by or somebody going by uh, yeah Grace if yeah thank you it's Grace's classroom she can do whatever she wants She <laughs> just it's her it's her thing so anyways. Uh, Chuck Colson's ministry has a um, a thing called Breakpoint. They do a daily podcast. It's now John Stone Street uh, who's running that. Um, Eric Metaxas has done work for them as well. There's a, a variety of people, and they're based sometimes out of Washington, sometimes out of Colorado. They've been in different places, but Breakpoint. Is usually a minute to two-minute little radio spot that they'll do every day, and then they sometimes do longer things. So there's an author named Glenn Sunshine, who's a professor at Central, Central Connecticut, who is doing articles on world religions and emerging worldviews. So he right now he's going through like New Age and the occult and Wicca and all that weird stuff that's going on right now, which I am actually happening to am teaching right now in the apologetics side of the school. We're doing comparative religions for apologetics and saying why the Christian gospel is true, and these are not. I mean, we're doing that uh, with juniors and seniors. And so the, there's a series on Breakpoint by Glenn Sunshine, this professor at Central Connecticut, on emerging worldviews. Well, anyways, at Breakpoint, they've now started a YouTube channel, and they link to them in at breakpoint.org as well, called What Would You Say? And what it is is if, you, what they do is they pose, a very common argument that you run into culturally and say, how do you answer this? And they're, they're done in like bite form, like say three to five minutes, and then they recap the arguments. Does that make sense? And so when Grace was here, this, uh, I think you were, was it you, the first week we were here and we watched the one? Or No, it was Basil's. We watched the first one of those. So Basil's were here and we, we watched that one. Um, and it was about separation of church and state and a lot of the misunderstandings. That was the, what would you say. This one, which came out like a week or two ago, is, is uh, the whole the government shouldn't legislate morality. You'll often hear that phrase. And what would you say if somebody said, like if you're advocating, for example, I'm just going to throw something out there, for a pro-life position. And then the government, and then the people will say back to you, "Well, the government shouldn't be involved with legislating morality." How do you answer that? It's you, you get that sort of argument, right? So that's what this video is about, and it's an intentional, just kind of discussion starter. And then we'll get into the actual study itself. Here we go. Conversation
1: about what should be legal and what should be illegal, and someone says, "You shouldn't legislate morality." What would you say? People who say that morality shouldn't be legislated have a problem with the idea of using laws to make everyone else behave like they think they should. But the next time you hear that it's wrong to legislate morality, here are three things to remember. First, every law is a moral law. limit laws are based on the idea that it's wrong to endanger the lives of others. Recycling laws say it's right to reuse things if you can because it's wrong to abuse the environment. Arson laws say it's wrong to burn down your neighbor's house if his dog poops in your yard. From speed limits, to the criminal code, to building regulations, to laws that govern business and protect consumers. Each and every law asserts that some things are good and other things are bad. Some things are helpful and others are harmful. All laws are moral laws. Which leads to the second Since every law is a moral law, every law legislates morality. Now sometimes, the law takes moral positions everyone can agree on, like laws that prevent dumping poisons into public waterways. Sometimes, the law takes moral positions on issues of strong disagreement, as with abortion. But the fact that there is a disagreement about an issue does not change the fact that both sides are taking a moral position. Which leads to the third point. Since every law legislates morality, the better question to ask is, whose understanding of morality will better lead to human flourishing? Really, the accusation that legislating morality is wrong is an attempt to attack people and avoid discussing crucial ideas. Recognizing that everyone is trying to legislate morality allows us to talk about what's really important. Does abortion actually help women? Is every family structure the same? Or do kids actually need a mother and a father? Most of the time, those who express concerns about people legislating morality are targeting religious morality. These same people are unconcerned about the risks of legislating morality when it comes to the moral causes they care about, like saving the planet ensuring LGBT productions, or addressing income inequality. Now, this reveals that the concern isn't really about legislating morality generally, but about legislating morality that's different than theirs. So next time someone tells you not to legislate morality, remember these three things. First, every law is a moral law. Whether it's speed limits or abortion laws, every law is taking a moral position, and that's what it's supposed to be. Second, every law legislates morality. Third, the better conversation is whose understanding of morality would better lead to human flourishing. We are all entitled to our opinion, but we can't all be right. Let's find out which morality is the best morality.
0: So that's the view there, and so I'm just curious your reaction to that because I've heard this in several debates. Um, this is, it's often the libertarian position also, you'll hear that the government shouldn't be legislating morality and the only law is don't hurt anybody else and as long as you don't hurt anybody else you can do whatever you want. That's a very common position um, because what it does is it allows you, and you can understand the appeal, is it allows you to avoid conflict. right? Say, well you just believe your thing, I'm just going to believe my thing, we'll just leave each other alone and then everybody's going to be happy. right? That's kind of the, that's the, that's the mindset and you understand why is it's conflict avoidance, and it's a way to kind of go along to get along without ever really confronting anything. However, if you read the scriptures, when God talks about things like justice for the orphan and the widow, or the protection of life, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, sexual morality, or all the other things that we read about in scripture, you don't really get that impression that it doesn't affect anybody else. I mean, I, I, I haven't found it in my Bible, and somebody's shown it to me, where it says, you know, uh, leave people alone. As long as they don't hurt anybody, they can do what they want. I don't really find that in scripture anywhere.
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, honestly, I don't. I don't find it. But for some reason, that seems to be this kind of common cultural assumption. And I get why. It's, it's, and in some ways, I guess there's maybe a truth in it in the sense that we aren't going to always agree on things, and sometimes we have to just be neighbors with people, right? I mean, I get, the, I get the reason people say that, and I understand why there's a certain appeal to it. But at the end, you have to realize that when you say that, you say, you do your thing, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is itself a moral position. That's, a moral, that's morality. That's your morality. So you can't tell people that they're, it's, it's strange. Um, we, we often speak in circles in that way, arguments that blow themselves up. Another way, and so if you think about uh, worldviews uh, world for a second, and then I'll get to this, some of this other government stuff. But some people will say, for example, there are no moral absolutes. And the but first thing you have to say when somebody says that is, are you absolutely sure? That's, I mean, honestly. Yeah. And if they say yes, then that's absolute, and they've just contradicted themselves. And if they say no, then why are they talking? You get the point that I'm making? It's an argument that blows itself up. The other one, of course, and he pointed this out in this video, and I'm glad he did, is at some point, you can't both be right at some fundamental level. Either one is right, or they're both wrong. They can't both be right, right, in some of these moral disagreements. You can't have it both ways. But in Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions, you can, which is why people are attracted to things like Zen Buddhism, or Hinduism, or these new age and esoteric religions. Why? Because you can define truth for yourself, and everything is just a little part of this overall truth on your way to enlightenment, or your way to right. You see what I mean? So it's attractive. So really, starting in the 1800s, but really in the 20th century, the, ni- the 1900s eastern religions and it influences government and and it's in hollywood i remember i think it was richard Gere back in the day was talking about how zen buddhism was such a great thing for him but the reason buddhism and the reason hinduism and these new age occultic religions which are influenced by those eastern philosophies honestly and they're very blatant about it the reason those are so popular is because it allows you to just be the autonomous individual and determine things for yourself, and avoid conflict with your neighbors, and avoid uh, worrying about what the government's doing, and all these other things. Because it just you just avoid it all, and it's just all just being true to you. Very attractive, and, and again, you can understand why because in a time of cultural. Uh, in, a, in a tumultuous time, maybe is the word, or just cultural conflict where we can't even agree what the word justice means. We can't even agree on what the word liberty means or the word, what, what the word freedom means. We can't even define our terms. It's very tempting to just say, you know what? You do your thing, I do my thing. Right? So that's a very hard thing to deal with when it comes to government, because when you read the scriptures, when you read the natural law tradition, which we actually take a part of as Lutherans, when you read Luther himself, you read our confessions, if you read Roman Catholic theology, it doesn't matter what you're reading. If you go to the history of the church and just read, you're not going to find those sort of sentiments really anywhere. The idea that you just have this autonomous individual determining reality or we should just leave everybody alone. You You never see that. So it's a very kind of recent invention in the last 100 years, 200 years maybe that we kind of come to those conclusions. And so I just want to, I want to start with that. Any reaction to the video? Have, have any of you heard that argument before? The government shouldn't legislate morality. Have you ever heard that before? Sure? What's do you have any comments or feedback on that at all? I'll Give you a chance to open the floor. I don't want to lecture the whole time, obviously.
3: Um,
4: yeah, no, not really. I don't, but I you know, it's always you know, it seems like well, who's morality, you know, and, and Um, So I don't agree with that, but, you know, you're going to do it. The majority
0: agrees, so they do it. So what we're really talking about then is you're absolutely correct. It's not whether or not we're legislating morality, but whose morality is being legislated. That's the real thing that's going on. And what's happening in the marketplace of ideas, and I think he's right, that in most of these discussions, the people that make that argument are trying to shut down people of faith, usually, not all the time, but usually. They're trying to shut down people of faith because it's like, well, that's your religion, and that's that. If you want to do that on Sundays, that's fine, right? If you want to do that with your family, that's fine. But in the marketplace of ideas, you have to leave your religious convictions behind because we're not a religious nation, and so don't legislate it. Go ahead, read so it. I wonder
2: if that's because it seems counter to what is true, but so my own little thing is okay to do. But if someone else has said it in the past some other authority outside of myself we're getting rid of those cuz really if i'm just aligning with other with religion then that's a bigger sphere that's been a lot of people have aligned with that and so now we're just saying anything big we're getting rid of when you when they say you can't use religious morality it's weird because mm-hmm. that what else would be morality if a whole bunch of people see that as true how is that less important than each
0: of us doing our own thing i want i'm gonna you're onto something so forgive me i was going to talk about this anyways and you've just like lit this in can i write on your board mm-hmm. okay just i'm asking okay. okay okay so we have this and i've done this before but i want to talk about this again this is called the fact value dichotomy so what this is this comes from the thinking uh, this comes from reformed thinkers actually uh in particular and i think basil's you were here and i talked about this as well this goes back to the uh uh, the Worldview Institute at, in, in Switzerland. I forget the guy's names. but Nancy Schaefer. Schaefer. So it's the Schaefer, uh, Switzerland. But uh, Nancy Piercy now talks about this all the time, right? So I want to talk about this, and some of you weren't here uh, when we did talk about this anyways. This fact-value dichotomy. I want to explain why this is important and how our culture thinks in these binary choices. For whatever reason, we tend to think in binary choices. You're either a Republican or you're a Democrat, right? That's how we think. You're either religious or you're not religious, or you're either hateful or you're not hateful. Right? So if you disagree, and I'll give you great examples of this. If you oppose gay marriage, you're homophobic. There's no other options. You either support it or you're, you know, some sort of, some have some sort of clinical phobia. You, you know what I'm saying? We think in these binary choices. And so this is how this kind of works. This is the fact value dichotomy and I, or uh, the abortion issue. I'll give you a great example. Either you're pro liberty or you want to control women's bodies. Wait a minute. Why aren't there other options, right? That's, that's, and in, in logic and in debate class, we call that a false dichotomy where you create two artificial choices and try to say you have to be in one or the other. And then, right, that's the sort of idea, right? That's what they, so what this does is this is topical. So imagine like what, what we tend to do in the culture is we tend to think, well, these certain things are facts and these certain things are values. And I'll show you what we So when people think of facts, here's what they do. They put like math up here. They'll put uh, economics up here. They'll put science up here. Uh, they might put uh, studies up here. Um, they might put things like logic, right? They'll put all this stuff. And under this kind of broad category, we'll call these facts. And these are the things that everybody is supposed to agree on at all times. doesn't matter if you're a Christian, non-Christian, white, black, male, female, You have to agree up here because these are just facts. It's a very modern way of thinking, not postmodern. This is a modernist way, but this is still around, especially in the realm of politics and in the realm of like the academy. Okay, and so like if you're in science, if you're a college professor of science, you're dealing with a factual subject. But if you're a college professor of literature, that's all based on opinion. Okay, okay, see where I'm going with this? And so then down here under values, you know what we do here? We put religion, we put things like music, or we can just say the arts in general, okay? We put literature, okay? We put just really what we just call culture in general, okay? Um, and we can even say morals under va- as a value. And we break things up like this. And so here's how this works. I'm just gonna give you some examples culturally of how we do this fact-value dichotomy. It's fascinating to me, and I think if you understand where this is coming from, it'll help explain a lot of our debates, not only politically, just culturally. So for example, somebody up here is gonna say something like, well, we've had five studies based on uh, this, on, on, our, on our assumptions and we've had this peer reviewed on ADHD medication and we believe that kids should be medicated at this age so that they can better function in the classroom, blah, 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 and that's like this scientific argument, then it gets put in education journals and then the teachers unions advocate for it and then all of a sudden all our kids have ADHD medication because it's factual, right? That's how people think, okay? Because that's, there's five scientific studies, it was gone through policy, it was made part of the. and I'm just making something up off the top of my head. But you, you get the point I'm making, that's how, so when we think of policy and government policy, people go this way, right? But then when we talk about something like music or literature, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. See how we've done that? Or it's just, what's right for you isn't necessarily right for you. It's all about taste, it's apples and oranges. See how, see how we think that way? And we all do this, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm exempt, but we've taken these things and, and then what happened, that's, that's a more little mundane one, not necessarily mundane. I think it's more important than people think it is because we don't think deeply about those things, but it doesn't seem as, uh, I guess, high, it doesn't have the gravitas as something like the life issue, for example, right? But on all these, literature is a great example. You can now go to Harvard and study queering literature or feminist literature. Why? And then you'll get these doctoral studies. And I see them. Okay? I mean, I'm a geek. So I'm an academic. I'll get these. I, I subscribe to journals. And I subscribe to like academic papers and stuff. I don't read them all. But I just see what's coming out. And it'll say, like, towards a queer theory of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. What? Well, if it's all based on opinion. And if it's all based on values. You can interpret music or literature as, in any way you want to. So we're gonna have theories on this. We're gonna have theories on this. And the more like aggrieved um, uh, groups that you have, the more genuine you can, uh, you can be in terms of your opinions on these things. I don't even have time to talk about the big buzzword of the day, which is called intersectionality. I'll talk about that some other day. That's a huge thing right now in the academic circles and in uh, certain, uh, especially progressive world uh, acad- uh, academics, where it's like the more of these like, agreements that you have, the more like status you should have or the more you should be able to speak out on things. It's a really fascinating way of looking at it. it comes from the late 80s and 90s, but it's really caught on in the last 10 and 15 years. In fact, uh, Ross, you were there. We had that guy that came in for training. I, he was all in on that sort of stuff. And actually, I was sitting back there and I was really having a hard time not saying stuff. I don't know if you know that, but I, I, was like, I went up and talked to Robert after that training. And I was like, okay, you do realize that about 30% of what he said is completely incompatible with the Christian worldview, right? <laughs> it was just one of those moments. And then he was like, yep, yeah, the only thing I really got out of it was this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it was just a funny conversation. Um, I, almost wrote a, I almost wrote I almost almost wrote. wrote like a point-by-point response and then asked to send it. I almost did it. Because it was just, some of what he was saying just did not make any sense. Well, okay, I,
2: think, I think you should do that, and we should just do it as a, as a step Because I agree, it was totally all over the place. The things that, yes, we have to hear what the world says, but... Mm-hmm. We need to not be following some of the things. And again, and he was always place enough that I think everybody I talked to didn't really know what he was saying.
0: Right. I mean, I think there's probably two or three of us in the room that even knew what he was referring to. It was and
2: an s- academic seminar on diversity. And
0: he admitted he was postmodern. He even admitted, and I was like, as Christians, we don't believe that truth is relative. So you've already lost us, in a sense, because we believe that the word of God is objectively true. So we believe in objective truth. And then this guy's coming out and saying, there's no such thing. And it's all based on your grief status, this kind of intersectional idea. And I'm just kind of like, okay, I mean, there's truth in what he was saying. And that, yes, you want to you wanna make sure that you're sensitive to students. For those of you who are not in here, what, what, what weren't in our school. Grace was there too. We had a, a training and this was just an invite. He was an outside guest. So it wasn't anybody's fault or anything like that. But we had an outside guest do a diversity kind of style training at Grace. And he's um, at ISU. And I won't name names because we got the podcast and stuff. And I don't want to, like, you know, start a, a kerfuffle or whatever <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I don't want to start anything. But what it was, he came and talked to us. And it, he literally started out his discussion about how postmodern he was. And he was, like, writing these academic terms on the board. And like you said, I think the only person, there was probably like two or three of us in the room that know th- what this discussion was. Like, you know, so first off, he already lost half the room. Okay, let's just say that. But then he was making some statements about truth and statements about experience, and that basically your experiences are what determine your reality. That was a a real, that was one of the quotes that he made. I was like, whoa, wait a minute here. As Christians, we believe reality is objective. God created the universe and sustains it by his power. You can't have your reality determined by your experience. It's real, whether you like it or not, right? Now you may acknowledge the reality of the universe. You may disagree with it. You may have different perceptions, but there is objective reality. We're here. God made it. He owns it, he makes the rules. Okay, that's actually a fundamental part of a worldview. And then he came in and said, and then so he based all his theories off of these things. And so I'm just kind of like, okay, I understand why you're here. And I understand the purpose of what you're trying to do, but you've actually undermined your own case without even knowing it. And so I'm sitting back here just, and I was just very quiet. I was sitting next to Dr. Dillon. And she kind of knew, too, because she's a literature professor. She's got her PhD in in German literature, and so she's in these academic settings. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just writing her notes. And she's like, you're awful you're awful you know it was just really really funny but um and i was good and i actually participated i don't even remember ross grace like he was asking government questions and i actually started like helping him along and stuff so it wasn't like i was anti this guy you know what i'm saying it wasn't like i wasn't it wasn't animus but from a worldview standpoint it was a problematic presentation that we had here again not not grace folks it was an outside person yeah go ahead. and why was he there it was an, it was an, it was like an invite for teacher training. Like you can get like CEs, like so continuing okay, so education. for
4: teachers, for the betterment of students, supposedly, which comes back to the human flourishing. What is best for human flourishing? Right. That's what, that's supposedly what that is. Right. And so that question, uh, whose understanding of morality will better lead to human flourishing? Back when I started education, the studies pointed to, okay, uh, mom and dad in a stable home. Uh, that They all showed the studies where that was what oh, yeah. was best for kids. Now it seems like you can make a study anything that you wanted to say, um, and they've shown, oh, no, right. that's not the case. There could be two dads. There could be three moms. And,
0: and the guys that actually go against that, like uh, Professor Regness at Baylor, get pillared. For, you know, for going against the, the current uh, orthodoxy. But besides that, you're right though, um, the idea of, I think it was like 2011 or 12, for the first time, out of wedlock births were the majority of births. It was like 2011, it was somewhere in there, like right after 2010. And I don't think we've still really figured out the cultural cost from that, because a lot of those kids, are they're still kids, right? So it's 2010 to 12, and so they're only in elementary school at this point, right? Like they're my son's age, they're eight, nine years old. And so, we don't really know until they're teenagers in their 20s, 30s, what the cultural cost of that actually will be. And so I don't really know how you can make a value judgment that way in, in you know, in thinking of facts and values here in general. But you're right that the, 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 the orthodoxy for forever, not just in education, but in things like uh, drug abuse. Um, recidivism into the prison system, uh, economic status, I mean, we can go through, I mean, every economic study ha- ever done has said that marriage is the best thing for economics, like for, for stability and family, for investments, for uh, uh, getting out of poverty, for ch- uh, ch- uh, ch- uh, the flourishing of children, I mean, every economic study, almost every single one of them, if you think about this. And so, in fact, there are ec- economists now that write that marriage is a commodity like, people that are in a stable marriage are actually a commodity. They have an economic value that most of the culture doesn't have, which is fascinating, that you're actually, you and a marriage actually have economic value that's actually above and beyond what most people in the population have. I think that's amazing, an amazing statement, but we don't talk about it. It's 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 fascinating. So I'm with you, Dana. It's, it's interesting how education theory has changed on that. And like you said, there's tons of studies on this, right? Tons of studies. But because the, because those studies seem to indicate a value judgment on what makes a family, right? They make a value judgment. So now what we have to do is put that under values. Now, well, whatever your family is, just make, make as long as you're self-fulfilled or as long as you're being true to yourself, that's your value. That's just a, that's that's not a fact. That's just whatever you're doing for your own self-fulfillment. So we've shifted that topic. At least there's an attempt to shift that topic from factual information, doing studies on you know children flourishing, and we've now shifted it to a value, right? And said, "Just depend well, whatever your family circumstance is." So on the
4: video, why yeah. do they say that's the better question? The better question is, "Flourishing, yeah, human flourishing yeah, flourishing."
0: yeah, so he doesn't extend it. The, the, what he means, and this comes, this comes from natural law theory. So he is, he doesn't. I'm, I'm actually tall enough to hit the flag. I feel tall for like the first time in my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, natural natural law theory has to do with, and this comes from scripture, but also just from natural law. Um, roman catholics talk this way too just so you know like if you talk to a, a real solid roman catholic political theorist they'll they'll speak in these sort of terms the idea of human flourishing is what legal system what laws do we have maximizes human potential is the idea so in other words in what what society or what series of laws will allow human beings to reach their maximum extent okay so in other words and from a christian worldview it's what were we designed for and how can we create laws to allow humans to reach their full potential? Now, it's not salvation. Remember, this is kingdom of the left stuff. We're going to have to get to this. It's not salvation. What this is, is in the kingdom of the right, I mean the kingdom of the left, sorry, this is kingdom of the left. In the kingdom of the left, what laws can we have that al- allow us to restrain evil, right, to restrain evil? It's, that's one of the number one reasons we have governments, to restrain evil, okay? And then promote the good, or that's hence human flourishing, right? And, or uh, another way we used to say it is to promote the good, the true, and the beautiful, that the role is to restrain evil and then promote the good the true and the beautiful. It's a very classical way of looking at that. And so when he says human flourishing what he means is is that our laws should promote the good the true and the beautiful for all of humanity or whoever your citizens are. That's that's what he that's what he's referring to. It's very classical, very much a natural law. Does that make sense Dana where yeah. he's coming from on that? Yeah. Is it's it's a it's a philosophical approach. When
4: I think of human flourishing I thought of Salvation of God. That's
0: right, no, he's, that's t- he's speaking in the kingdom of the left, saying that for all laws, how do we maximize human potential? That's why, for example, I'll bring up Hill versus Hodges. So, for people on the podcast, that's the decision in 2015, Supreme Court, that legalized same-sex marriage. The Roman Catholic bishops came out and said this ruling is unjust which is interesting, right, most people were, because most people in the media and most people in public, public, well, it was justice for same-sex couples, right? I mean, that was the implication, right, is that it's justice for same-sex couples because they were being oppressed or they didn't have their rights or whatever it was, and so now we have this ruling. But the Roman Catholic bishops came out, uh, the United Conference, and they put out a statement saying this ruling is unjust. Why? Because it actually gets in the way of human flourishing because that's not how we were designed. You see, how the, you, see, you see the logic there? And that justice is not based on what people perceive to be wrongs. Justice is an objective thing that comes from God, and it's according to what we deserve as humans and getting what we're designed for, and that justice should align with those natural law principles. And so it's interesting that Roman Catholic bishops put this out, and they basically said this ruling is unjust because it's actually going to cause more damage than it solves. That was, their, that was their view. And so even though individual couples were celebrating and they may have found like they were liberated or they had a certain freedom or whatever, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at where justice comes from and if you look at the good, the true, and the beautiful and the promotion of human flourishing, the law was actually, un- that, that court decision was actually unjust. It's fascinating. You should, if, you, if, you, if you have a time, if you want to look that up, I, I might have a link somewhere, an old statement. But when that, that decision came down in 2015, you should look. If you, you, can even just, you can even just, it's called the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's, it's like they're, they all get together sometimes and put out these statements and stuff like that. Um, they like, for example, at the March for Life in January, they did this. And here I am a Lutheran recommending these statements, but, I, but they're really, sometimes some of their statements are really helpful. And this is a really good example of just thinking from a natural law standpoint, how in the kingdom of the left, some of these decisions which sound like liberty or sound like freedom actually are unjust because they're going against human flourishing. And it's very difficult to speak that way culturally because you have to actually have a conversation and we want to think of 30 second sound bites and then you're put in these categories. You're either a hater or a lover or whatever. And it's hard to actually have that conversation. Now here we can have it, but it's very different. So if you have not seen that, that's a fascinating discussion. Um, But on this thing, remember, I'm going back facts and values and then I want to get into our sheet a little bit. Facts and values, If marriage or if morality is just a value, well, then the court's decision makes sense. Think about it. Why would you deny people their rights when they are defining reality for themselves? Anthony Kennedy, who is one of the votes, now he's retired from the court now, okay? Anthony Kennedy, one of the the judges in that statement, in 1992 or 93 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which reaffirmed abortion rights with some restrictions. So in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Anthony Kennedy made an amazing admission, and I don't even think he knew it. In his decision, it's one of the most infamous judicial statements I've ever read. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase, but basically, incumbent on every person is their right to define reality for themselves. 1993, he said that. Now, I'm like, wait a minute. You're a judge. Think about this. You're supposed to arbitrate whether something's constitutional or not. You're supposed to arbitrate how the law speaks to people and you're saying reality is determined by oneself then what if my reality says your decision's wrong yeah it's it's one of the most amazing admissions culturally that's ever been said from the judicial bench and it's kind of buried in that decision in planned parenthood versus casey but anthony kennedy actually said you have it's your right uh, a right like when, when the judge is speaking from the bench i mean he's saying this is like a constitutional right to determine reality for yourself we got a problem now, because then the Constitution can be whatever we want it to be, because that's my reality. Okay, we got, this is really, I mean, so I'm, I'm, there's a lot of, so Kennedy was on that 2015 decision also. And so, again, if you shift that stuff to values, this is why I think this is helpful, well then, yeah, under your, you know, under different amendments of the Constitution, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment, which says that you have equal protection under the law, which, by the way, was intended to give slaves their rights. That's why the 14th Amendment's there, Okay. But what happens is, is it's, we've extended that now to all the states and like expanded it to all these different facets of life, equal protection under the law. And so it was originally made for integrating freedmen, in, integrating former slaves into society, but now it's been extended in all ways. So the equal protection clause was actually at stake in that 2015 decision. That's how, and, and, and I'm just telling you, that's where the, the constitutional or at least the legal arguments came from because that's a value. And how dare you deny their equal protection because that's just their opinion of what their marriage is. So that's why I think thinking this way helps us because if we can have this discussion and show how artificial this is, then it kind of helps to kind of explain some things. Because actually if you really think about it, nobody truly believes this, but they think this way and they want to have it this way. Here's what I mean. If you get really hard on people in some of these things, for example, Killing is wrong. Well, that's immoral. But there's not like a billion scientific studies that say killing is always wrong in all circumstances. In fact, you might find some scientific studies that say the opposite—that eliminating 10% of the population is a drain on society economically or something. I mean, you could theoretically come up with a study like that, right? But almost everybody in the culture would say, "Well, that's well, that's immoral. How dare you impose that moral on me when I think that 10% should be eliminated so that my kids can have more money? How dare you make that value judgment?" So, in other words, if you really get down to it, most people don't actually go this full route, but they want to have it that way because then it allows people to avoid discussions, not have conflict. You see what I'm saying? That's where this is coming from. So, it's a fascinating philosophical discussion. If you're not familiar with this, this fact-value dichotomy idea, in your own brain, you can even think of ways that you probably do it yourself, right? Because we do this. But to the ancient Greeks, for example, I'm just going to bring up the Greeks. I think the scriptures, we can speak to this, too. But to the ancient Greeks, this would have been ridiculous, okay? And I mean this, and here's what I mean. For example, math, math was religious for the ancient Greeks, okay? The Greeks, like Plato, for example, believed that the architect of the universe had nothing better to do than to eternally contemplate perfect geometry. Sounds weird to us to think it that way, but that's what he thought, okay? Or, for example, the arts creating a perfect statue with the golden ratio and all these other things was an act of worship. Okay, and it reflected the divine order of the universe. Pythagoras found his mathematical discoveries and founded like almost like this kind of cult devoted because he thought that the, the universe which functioned to these heavenly numbers and perfect ratios and all these other different things were kind of resonating with kind of the gods or something like that. And so it was there was no d- d- distinction between these things. Do you get what I'm saying? That's actually, by the way, how we get music theory, the music of the spheres, is he took ratios and said, hey, two to one, take a string, divide it in half, boom, oh, you got an octave. And then he did two to three and three to five and found all these ratios and basically built our modern musical scale, and it was very mystical for him. And they talk about the music of the spheres, how these ratios vibrate. You know, you get what I mean, this is the Greeks. So you get the impression they would have, this would have been completely an anathema to them, to divide your life this way, Okay. And I'm not saying that the Greeks are great on everything. I'm, not, I'm just saying that culturally, this sort of thinking is very modern. And it's not, most people back in, you know, 300, 400 years ago, and then really almost all of human history beyond that, would not have thought this way. This is a modern way of thinking. And then the postmodern way just makes it even more extreme. So like ultra, ultra-modernism, let's take this to the max. And so we're going to even accentuate this even more. History, as a historian, by the way, history, when I, just so you know, I put history right here. I was going to ask
2: you that. Where did that
0: go? Why? Because there's certain facts that people agree with, like, you know, George Washington accepted the surrender of Cornwallis at the Battle of Yorktown. Everybody accepts that as a fact, right? You know, that sort of thing. Or the, that even Jesus died on the cross in crucifixion. Every ancient historian accepts that. Okay, like 99% of historians. You'll find very rare people that deny that Jesus died on the cross. It's just a, it's a, as certain a probable fact of history as, as ever you're going to run into. Just knowing history, we don't speak in absolute terms. We speak in probability. In other words, kind of like the juries, beyond a reasonable doubt. So, beyond a reasonable doubt, we know that Jesus was crucified. So, those are considered facts. Does that make sense? Where values come in is how you interpret the history. So, what you do is you'll say something. I'll give you a great example. If you buy into, like, say, I'll say, ultra feminist theory. Okay, let me just throw that in there. Jesus died on the cross, and by liberating women, having them first be at the tomb, therefore, we should interpret the New Testament as uh, uh, the first beginnings of women's libera- liberation against the patriarchy, and Jesus was a proto-male feminist. And he died on the cross by, and was crucified by the patriarchal society who couldn't handle the fact that he had women in his, uh, you know, his followers. Everybody agrees the crucifixion happened, but you see the interpretation difference? You see, that, you see what I mean? That would be because of your values, which are your own opinion, you then reinterpret your history that way. Does that make sense? So it's funny because when I spend most of my time in my history classes, I end up actually having to teach facts a lot because we don't learn facts anymore, and so I'm like teaching kids vocab in history. I'm teaching, and now I don't do a lot of dates. Um, I do like uh, eras more than like actual dates. So I don't say like you know, uh, you know. July 4th, 1776, for the public reading of the Declaration. I mean, they all know that because the 4th of July. But, I mean, I don't do that with all these battles and stuff like that or elections. But what I do do is they need to at least have a, a framework, you know, kind of a ra- rough chronological order on things. But I have to do that because history is now taught this way so much in values and in interpretation. We don't even have a framework now. So I, I spend my time teaching facts, which is fascinating. And I'm like, you guys can look this stuff up, but you won't do it, so I have to tell you to do it. And that's kinda of what I'm finding myself doing in history is is just factual information about the revolution or the civil war or about the Kennedy assassination or whatever it is as opposed to I would love to with juniors and seniors be spending most of my time on the interpretive side, you know, or the worldview side. But I'm finding that I just gotta give them facts. And then we do the interpretive stuff.
2: So interpreting doesn't Work so well when you don't have the facts. So, we really have switched it around. We have interpreted and done values for so long in middle school and high school when they don't even know the facts to be interpreting from. That's the issue. That's why we changed, why it got changed. I'm not sure why, because we don't like memorizing facts. It's hard. Right. Part
0: of it is we've gotten in the school and education. For those of you in education, you guys all know, especially Ross, you'll know this, you've been in the business for a while. The idea of memory work has been just pushed away in general, right? Not just in history, just in general. Yep. It used to be you spent lots of time, especially in the elementary school, memorizing. You just memorize stuff like fact sheets and math and speed and you know those sort of things. And I know we do it some. You know, we still do it, and maybe you give rewards. But the idea of memory work in school is not what it used to be, right? Now because we have twenty-four access to the internet and we live in the information age, and everybody can look everything up, we're now teaching them life skills or research. I mean, that's, 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 it's a weird, it's a weird thing. I'm too classically oriented to do that. That would drive me crazy. So I can't do that. And, and I'm finding that the kids actually, for the most part, and you have, you know, I have your son, they kind of like my classes. I'm getting, you know, I, it's not like I'm losing my, my, my high school's kids. And so I'm, I don't know. It's interesting. So I'm, I'm just, again. I, I'm going to run out of time. I got like five minutes, but I just want to make sure that, that as we frame this, that this is something that we talk about because when it comes to government and the role of the two kingdoms, where God uses the left-handed kingdom to restrain evil, to promote the good, to allow the free course of the gospel, and then the right-handed kingdom, which is the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, justification, all that stuff, okay, they're, they influence each other when they mix, as, I, as we watched in the video last week. Joel Bierman at Concordia. When they mix, it creates a problem because people get confused. And when they don't influence each other, other at all, it's also a problem. Okay, we got kind of cut off the ends of the stick here. They get influenced without mixing. And unfortunately, now we're at a point, kind of like this, what would you say video, See, so I'm connecting all this together. Um, that We're at a point where we don't want that influence anymore. That's where we're at. So the mixing is not the problem right now. Now, some, in, some, some people will say that we are, that if you, for example, argue that, uh, children are uh, are alive from conception. That's a religious position, and you can't mix that. And you're going to create a theocracy. And I mean, you'll have that reaction. But for the most part, most people recognize there's not much mixing. Okay, there's just not much mixing. It's really the other way now. We're getting to the point now where it's we, we're butting heads, or we want to shove the religious folks, not just Christians, by the way, Orthodox Jews and Muslims also are sometimes in this category, right? So Orthodox Jews, we want to f- shove them away and say that their ideas are not welcome in the public sphere. Okay, and so if we talk about God, it's got to be very generic, right? God bless America. Well, there's, you know, ten religions that can accept that. God bless America, right? uh, Somebody that's from the Mormon faith, somebody that's Jehovah's Witness, somebody that's Christian, somebody that's uh, a Muslim, somebody that's a Jew. Heck, even a Hindu can accept that because they believe in the overall Brahmin, right? The world soul kind of sort of thing. Everybody can accept God bless America, so let's just say God bless America. And then we kind of... Have this civic religious moment and then move on. You know, I mean that's kind of we have this kind of anonymous God idea um, where it's very much a, a, as generic as, as possible because we want to avoid any semblance of establishment, right? In terms of things, so it's a fascinating discussion that way. All right, I, I do want to get to this if we if you're if you'll indulge me because I want to at least move a little bit. Um, if you have if you were gone, so like the Basils were gone, Naskers were gone, we had Terry Keating and who else was here? Oh no, Jim, you were here, right? So we had, uh, we had folks here last week. We watched a video. Grace was here. Um, if you look at this, so, so Basil's and NASCARs, if you want to kind of catch up, Lutheran Hour Ministries at the bottom of this handout that I gave you. We watched a video last week called uh, We the People. You can just go to this, and all the videos are available. So this is lhm.org. It's at the very bottom of your sheet slash we the people. We watched the first video last week, and this study guide or this kind of thing is keyed to that video. I want to be able to finish this and start the second one next week if we can. So if if, I don't like signing homework. I mean, do whatever you want to do. I'm just saying that if you want to kind of catch up on the discussion, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but that's kind of what this is. It would help. It might help understand kind of where I'm coming from as we define our terms as far as things go. So on this sheet, where we got last week, if you're following along, there's a little black bar on page two that says watch video one, and then we started having a discussion on how many laws does society need? Is it better to have more laws or fewer? And then the next one, how would you describe the level of government involvement in your life? Um, why do you th- Where do you think it needs to get involved? Where does it lead- need to leave its hands off? That's I don't think we would all 100% agree, even in this room, on some of this stuff, right? I mean, that's where this is. But it shows you how fraught the discussion is. And so we kind of ended there. And then at the end, it says, what does God define as the government's role? In his first letter, Peter addresses this question by mentioning our responsibility to our country. Okay, so you have the scripture on page three printed for you. This is where we left off last time, and I want to end on this to give you something to think of. It's always good to end on scripture, okay, instead of just my pontificating. (laughs) All right. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's interesting he uses the word Gentiles there, because you could actually translate that as unbelievers. Because Peter is actually writing to people who are believing Gentiles. So this is an odd statement. So he means unbelievers. Okay, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, that would have been the Roman emperor at this point, okay, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's where I get that. Restrain evil, promote the good. See why I'm, it's biblical, okay? Um, For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, and this is great because Jonathan's talking about this in the sermon today. If you haven't gotten yet, that's what he's going to talk about. Okay, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. Oh boy, do we lose that one? Okay, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, which is really interesting. You mean as Christians, we were supposed to bow before the king? yeah? Interesting. Okay, now we don't worship him, that's what gets Christians in trouble, <laughs> okay, but we honor the king. So it says, again, and this is great, and I love this study for this. Peter begins this passage noting our high calling as God's chosen people. Though we deserve death and hell for our sins, God has been gracious to us. He has forgiven us all our sins and given us the honor of being members of his heavenly kingdom. He calls us to share Christ's salvation to the end of the world. In order to make that sharing possible, God has established earthly governments to maintain the peace, control violent outbursts of evil, and to uphold and praise those who do good. Okay, and that's my kind of framing, work. that's, that's going to be kind of my framework moving forward, is when the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of the right, so the kingdom of the left is to restrain evil and to promote the good, or, more complicated, to restrain evil and to promote the good, the true, and the beautiful, that's a way we could extend that out, and the kingdom of the right is to proclaim the gospel, forgiveness of sins, okay, and citizenship of heaven. That's our, that's our doctrine of two kingdoms in a nutshell. And 1 Peter 2, 9 through 17 really encapsulates that really nicely. So this is not coming out of just kind of some opinion. We're getting this from Scripture. You should know this, that this idea is latent in passages like this, this letter from Peter. Okay, so I want to just emphasize the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we've got stuff in Paul and other places that back this up too. You know, when Paul says whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely. You know, in Philippians, there's, there's tons of passages. Paul in Romans 13 has a whole extended discourse on obeying the civil authorities also. So we get this in Paul too. We get a little in Jesus as well. So we can go all through scripture on that, and we'll do that on, on a different day. But I want to frame that. The good, the true, and the beautiful in the kingdom of the left, and then the proclamation of the gospel in the kingdom of the right, and that this fact-value dichotomy, this artificial dichotomy, if you read the scriptures... Does not allow this. Because if we're promoting the good, the true, and the beautiful in the kingdom of the left, we actually have to say that that's available, that we can know what that is. Otherwise, we can't promote it. Right? So that means that this has to be artificial. Otherwise, the kingdom of the left can't even do its job. Because if what evil is is just based on your opinion, then why the government's going to just be arbitrary. But if the kingdom of the left can restrain evil and promote the good and we know what those things are, then it's actually serving God's purposes in this world and it can restrain evil so that we can proclaim the gospel in the kingdom of the right you following me on this Does that makes sense so that's where this is going to go in terms of class so i want to i want to kind of and you can answer these on your own if you want i want to maybe ask some of those um and they quote the samuel passage that's coming up on page four in the first video um but there's also extended resources for those of you who are listening on the podcast uh lhm.org slash we the people you can actually get some other data so you can get the founding documents of the united states you can get some of the things about natural law from martin luther you can talk about the uh, two kingdoms from the augsburg confession i mean they have digging you can get as deep as you want in this and they have those at lhm.org we the people fascinating dis- uh, discussion um, as far as things go so any comments questions for let you go i know i went like three minutes long but any comments questions all right i'll stop this thing
3: We have a very busy February, so please make sure to note your calendars for the following events. The 210 Project Vision Seminar is happening Sunday, February 16th. If you are interested in doing the 210 Project and haven't signed up yet, make sure to do so this week with Pastor Von Busch. Also, on Sunday, February 16th, Ladies are invited to join us in Common Grounds to help plan the Camp Perkins Women's Retreat happening this fall. If you're curious about Women's Retreat or have ideas of how to make it amazing, please join us. Monday, February 17th at 7 p.m., join us for the Red Letter Challenge Week of Forgiveness. Forgiveness, the true and ultimate cathartic event. This will be a time of reflection and a time to look towards the forgiveness that we receive through Christ and the forgiveness that we can pass on to others. And on February 29th, the Grace Six-Pack Workshop given by Pastor Von Bush will be happening. You can sign up online. The subject of this workshop is peacemaking. If you have any questions about any of the events, please contact the church office or anyone on staff.